millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to The Napoleonicist and the final installment of Waterloo Week. We've talked a bit about the battle, we've talked about tourism, we've talked about various different facets. We've gone and kicked the legs out from underneath the Grouchy myth that vexes me so. But today we're going to talk about legacy. We're going to talk about who owned Waterloo. Because the history of what followed the battle and the arguments over it and the way in which it was manipulated and spun into national agendas and nationalistic myth-making is just as rich and just as interesting as the story of the battle itself. Joining me is Dr. Luke Reynolds, visiting assistant professor at the University of Connecticut, Stanford. He's the author of Who Owned Waterloo, which came out yesterday, in fact, uh, so, and it's out with Oxford University Press, no less, which is a highly impressive achievement. Luke, welcome to Napoleon Assist. Great to have you here for the first time. Congratulations on the book. You must be delighted. How are you doing? I'm well. Thank you so much for having me, Zach. Yeah, I am. I am delighted. I, it's, it's one of these things where I'm, I'm, I actually haven't held a physical copy yet and I'm waiting to because at that point it's going to be, oh, it's actually real. I'm still not quite sure it is. It's in that, it's in that phase. Um, but yeah, no, I am, I am delighted. I'm very well, and I am very happy to be here. Yeah, believe it, it, it is different when you've got that kind of tangential thing that you can hold and go, yes, this happened, but it's happening. And the noise around this has been really positive, I have to say. And I'm not remotely surprised, having been fortunate to get a, a look at this before publication to, to prep this episode. Um, it's, it's definitely one for people's bookshelves. Before we talk about who owned Waterloo, shall we deal with the elephant in the room that is important to get out of the way because everybody loves to kick this one around? Who actually won Waterloo? The Allies. Nice answer. Thank you. 
Uh, look, Wellington wouldn't have fought if it wasn't for the promise of Prussian help, right? That's built in there. We know that. And the Prussians did their damnedest to make it to the field on time as fast as possible. And crucially, and this is forgotten a lot of the time, ensured that the defeat stayed a defeat and turned into a rout, right? It's the Prussians that take over that retreat or take over that advance rather in the form of the Prussians and the, the Anglo-Dutch allies um, and turn that, you know, in that into a route, whereas the British sort of are, the, the British and their the sort of the Dutch allies and the Brunswickers and the, and the Hessians are left quite literally masters of the field uh, in the aftermath. But yeah, no, it is it is 100% the allies. It's not one, it's not the other. Um, when I teach this, and I, I mostly teach Waterloo in my 1500 to the present survey course, which is a, one semester, so it's literally about a century a minute, not quite, but you know what I mean. Um, the way I usually put it, which isn't geographically accurate, but it really helps my students get the idea of it, is, is that the French were, the, the, the dreams of the Hundred Days were effectively crushed between the hammer of the Prussians and the anvil of the Anglo-Dutch. That's a nice analogy. I like that one. Thank you. The other one that I particularly like is, and I've said this before on this show, um, Ben Mead, two years ago now, talking for um, an interview here. He's a, uh, one of the guys working for Waterloo Uncovered. Talked about, you know, the Waterloo campaign being a, a 19th century equivalent of NATO. You know, this is a, a coalition force in its truest sense with a plan, that plan existing well before the campaign starts. The, the, what happens at Waterloo is simply a reversal of what was meant to happen on the 16th because nobody anticipated Catra being the, the big battle um, that it ended up being. Wellington meant to sweep in and, and crush um, Napoleon's flank and that didn't happen and we just see the reversal of roles when it comes to Waterloo. Um, and it's nice to get in the fact that this is a cohesive plan that always existed and were it not for not only the, the steadfast performance of Hanoverians and Dutch um, and Hessian forces and, and yes, of course, the British and the Belgians at Mont Saint-Jean Ridge, then this plan wouldn't have worked. But equally, this plan was never going to work if Wellington's army stood on its own. Um, so there we go. We've dealt with that one. Let's get on to something a little bit different, though. We're going to kick around a lot in this one, ways in which the memory of Waterloo was kept alive and crucially manipulated and spun. And this is a big question to start off with, so apologies, I'm, I'm hurling you in at the deep end here, but why do you think it matters so much to the British public in the wake of the Napoleonic Wars? Because this sea exceeds the Salamancas and the Vittorias that have been lauded, and that's important to emphasize that when Salamanca happens, the public goes ballistic. Oh, absolutely. Uh, when Victoria happens, um, <laughs> Beethoven puts together a musical performance around it. You know, these are big things on, on the mm -hmm. European stage, not just the British stage. Obviously, nationalism has to play its part in this, but I always feel that it's more complex than that when it comes to the, the British perspective. Talk us through what your sense of it is. Yeah, no, absolutely, Zach. Uh, there's a there's no one easy answer for this. It's a couple of things, right? Um, the first one is you know, I have to say, there's no easy answer. And then I'm about to say, here's the easy answer for the, that, that people's minds jump to. But the first one is neatness, right? We are, we're conditioned to want a grand finale. 
uh, if think about just you know throw your mind back to the last time you opened uh, the London Times movie review section, and think about the number of times the number of movies that you've seen that's been they're criticized because their best action scenes are in the middle and then it sort of tapers off towards the end. Waterloo is an ideal grand finale. It is a perfect. It's a definitive ending. It's not a, just a petering out. And it's one where three of the great captains of the age, including the two truly important ones from the British national perspective, finally face off, right? And on that point, there is this Napoleonic factor. We can't, we can't, it's the other elephant in the room. Um, we can all appreciate Salamanca, Salamanca, Victoria, you know, Rory Muir has made the very cogent argument that Salamanca is a day that changes European history. Um, but critics always had the, well, Napoleon wasn't there. At Waterloo, he was, and it was still the dream of the hundred days that was crushed. Right, so, I mean, that's, that's definitely part of it. And that neatness does play a part of it as does this sort of grand drama of these two or three, if you want to count Prince Blücher, who you really should count, um, facing off finally in this, in this momentous, concentrated battle in one day in a small valley, you know, it is, it's, it's perfect. There's also the factor of timing. Because Waterloo was the last major British battle for quite a while um, in the European context until Navarino in 1827, if you want to make that argument, or on the land, really the Crimea, you know, uh, it had the time that it needed to really sink into the consciousness without being supplanted. There was nothing, there was no next big thing. Waterloo was the next big thing for quite a while. Um, and on that point, I also want to touch on something that's, that we sort of, we don't, British historians tend to, to shy away from it. It was actually a German historian who poked me at, poked this at me uh, at a conference once. And, it should be remembered that the last major British battle before Waterloo isn't Toulouse, right? Which is the one we all think of. It's New Orleans. And Waterloo washes the taste of that away, right? Waterloo is what pushes away the fact that New Orleans is a defeat, right? And we even have, it's, I've only encountered one mention of it, but there's a, there's a, um, there's a, a grand gala at Sydney Gardens in Bath, which is sort of Bath's version of Vauxhall uh, in August of 1915, 1815, 1815, um, that deliberately ties the War of 1812 into the Waterloo victory. It has the royal standard of Great Britain um, ascendant over the national symbols of both France and the United States as a way to sort of push that out of the way. So there is that absolutely there, you know, sort of we're not we're not riding the 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 sort of the 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 glorious bits of the peninsular war from Salamanca to Victoria and on. We're we're coming back from New Orleans. Um, and I think part of it is indicative, the fact that I have to remind people of that is indicative of how successful it is. Uh, it, go ahead, Zach, please. Is there a, a sense of building kind of negative momentum there as well? Because to lose Toulouse isn't great, is it? Because um, you look at the numbers and you sort of go, well, it's it's about honours even when it comes to losses. And the, the reason that it can effectively be claimed as a victory is because 
the French withdraw over the course of the night. So yes, okay, the the objectives eventually are achieved, but it's it's a it's a fine margin. It's a very fine margin, um, and it's one of a couple of occasions where you can sort of start to say, is this is this a victory? Is this a draw? Um, it's it's not a a clear cut thing. And then, as you say, War of eighteen twelve, New Orleans. That's that's a, a kick um, to the national image and. As a result of that, as you say, that you know this idea that you can go well, yeah, we'll, we'll just quietly forget about that, and instead, <laughs> hey, let's talk about Waterloo, and, and then you talked earlier about Napoleon and spin this thing and kind of make this argument. Well, yeah, but when we face Napoleon at the moment where it really mattered, that's when we were counted, um, and in the process, obviously, push aside the Dutch and the Belgians and all the rest of them. Um, yeah. yeah, it's it's a very kind of powerful point that you make there. Yeah, I mean, I, it's sort of, it's, it's one, it was one of the, especially the, the War of 1812 part was one that sort of evolved as I was writing it. You know, it's, it's that thing about how writing is a, a perfect way to process information. Um, I know you have had this experience, we've all had this experience of finishing an article or a chapter and then at the end going, oh, that's what I was arguing. Okay. And then, <laughs> you know, making it work. The other, the final thing, I, the final two things that really play into this, and I do, I do want to just briefly mention them. First of all, because of, again, because of the timing, Waterloo becomes a point of justification for Britain's actions and foreign colonial policy throughout the first half of the 19th century, which means that people are constantly looking back to it and referring back to it. And, and finally, purely just from um, the, the party atmosphere, if you want, it helps that June 18th is pretty much slap bang in the middle of the season. And so that, that, um, you know, that anniversary, there are people, there are events, and it works in a way, you know, you're not going to have the sort of trying to get people into London that you might have for something like Trafalgar in October, right? It's June, it's there, everyone's there, it's perfect. But equally, the weather's good as well. You know, exactly. you're, you're, you're a few days away from the longest day of the year, the, the summer solstice. So on a, on a few levels, if you want to get people out and attending events and maximize the use of the light, it's light until 9 p.m. Uh, local time. And, and therefore, that's something that you can build upon. Yeah. And that's that's what, one of the reasons it becomes so popular. Right. You've got, you know, yes, you have society at, um, you know, at eventually Apsley House, but also at Vauxhall and at the um all of the, the the balls and things like that, and they have they can pay for the candles, right? They can go till four in the morning. People in the country can't to the same level, um, and so you have outdoor events, you have country events that take advantage of that light to push and to be part of that. So we have, you know, we have sports days, we have rural sports days, we have the the dance on the knives, which is an Arlesford outdoor ball. Um, where they just sort of decorate this common and they ferry people back and forth across the lake in style. And they dance until, as you say, nine, 10 o'clock at night because they have the light. This is brilliant already. I'm loving it. Um, <laughs> Thank you. I kind of feel like we've started already, but we, we sort of haven't really, have we? we? We've barely skimmed the surface. And one of those places that we've got to kind of start looking at as you do in, in your book, you know, the logical starting point is personal memory, right? Um, and it goes without saying, 
see Gareth Glover's many volumed Waterloo archive uh, as a testimony to this, we have a glut of material. The number of accounts that are produced from these four days, in some respects, actually is part of the problem because that's where you get the arguments, you get the infighting, different regiments wanting to claim that they're the regiment that won Waterloo, whether it's because that cavalry regiment charged at a particular moment in time or the 52nd wheeled out of line or all of those and and Maitland's brigade and all the rest of it and so everybody's defeated the imperial guard and everybody's uh defeated Derlon's corps and and seen off the the French cuirassiers and and all the rest of it um but when we come to the peninsula war we have a big and I do mean big issue in terms of influence on memoirs which is Charles Napier uh the, the the history of, that he produces of the Peninsula War. And we have something that between scholars, we term Napier factor, which is this idea that a lot of the memoirs that follow uh, Napier's publication of his history end up just slotting into line behind what Napier has said because they don't want to contradict him. So do we have an equivalent for Waterloo? Are there certain accounts which dominate and leave these unhelpful shadows that skew popular memory? And I'm deliberately leaving um literary accounts like victor hugo to one side for the moment we'll get there because uh, that's a whole that's a whole thing in yeah, itself thackeray versus hugo yeah precisely uh, which is a boxing match i would thoroughly have enjoyed seeing you and me both <laughs> yeah um so the answer here is is not on the same level right napier produces it's this wall it's the line of taurus vedras of peninsular history um but we do have we do have some of that right we have uh, we have the sort of the, that, that, and it depends on, again, on what side you stand, right? Was uh, the Prince of Orange actively a bad general or was he merely 22 years old? Uh, a man of great personal bravery, but still 22 years old. And I, you know, I challenge you, Zach, who amongst us can defend everything we did at the age of 22? I'll be honest with you. I can barely remember being 22. I feel like I've been 390 since I was about four, there's, I mean, there's a certain irony in that, in that I still look like I'm about four, but we'll, we'll gloss over that. Um, <laughs> it's what a PhD will do to you. <laughs> but um, but that that a lot of that sort of vilification of him comes out of Cyborn's work. Cy- not not his models' works, to be clear, but the 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 sort of grand uh, uh, narrative that he wrote. Right. So that's that's a part of it. But really the big, the looming shadow here is Wellington's dispatch, right? This is a battle report that is so legendary. It's so famous. Not only does it name a battle, but it's gotta be one of the few battle reports to become the center of a painting. Um, And that's a remarkably short document. It's four pages when it's finally printed, not finally, three days later, printed as an extraordinary edition of the London Gazette. Right, and that leaves so much room for others to come in. Um, and it helps that Cyborn also takes some time to get there, right? He collates this enormous, you know, talking of, of Glover, right? He talk, collates this enormous collection of, of written sources, um, worth noting as well, the majority of them are British and the majority of them are officers, right? He don't goes we're nowhere near to the same level to go out to the Prussians. Um, or the enlisted ranks, which is ironic considering what happens to him. Um, but it does take a while, you know? And so I don't think there's quite something of the level of the Napier factor. 
And instead, if you read Napier accounts, um, not Napier accounts, published accounts, I'm looking at my notes and getting wrong here. Um, just to peek behind the curtains, everybody, I'm not normally this erudite. I've got notes here. That's how this is working. Um, Don't shatter the illusion. You're doing brilliantly. <laughs> thank you. I appreciate that. Um, but if you read the published accounts, and crucially in this case, the ones that know they're going to be read by a hopefully wide audience, right? Not the ones that are written exclusively to family with not really the assumption that they're going to be published, but the ones that they know are going to end up in newspapers and in folio volumes between those nicely bound uh, covers. Um, they all have their own axe to grind. They all have their own point that they're responding to, right? I'm going to give you, I'm going to throw out a couple of examples here based on the ones that are in my book, but you can grab others, right? So we have Kincaid, who is pushing back against the whole idea that it's an allied victory, who to his dying day maintains that Wellington's final charge would have shattered the French, whether the Prussians were there or not. Uh, so that's his point. We've got Leach, who is simultaneously defending Wellington against civilians and ranting about how civilian depictions gave all of the credit to the Highlanders. Right, there's that, he has that whole wonderful thing about how, uh, you know, if you, if you look at the average uh, model or the average uh, panorama, Waterloo was won entirely by the Irish and John Bull and Pat weren't there at all. They were drinking in the background while those kilts went forward. Um, and then the final one, we've got, you know, Anton, Sergeant Major Anton, an enlisted uh, uh, memoir, which I deliberately sort of sought out um, and he's really trying to remind his readers that each of those soldiers is an individual. He drops into almost poetry at times. It's incredible. It, it, it is, and he did actually, the first memoir he ever wrote, the first journal he ever wrote of the campaign was in rhyme. And sadly he deleted it because I would have loved to have, not deleted, destroyed it, because I would have loved to have gotten my hands on that. Um, but he's sort of pushing that whole idea and also defending corporal punishment. He's part of that old guard of, of the British uh, army uh, pushing that. So they all have their own access to grind in a way responding to, as you say, that glut of memoirs and that glut of accounts uh, pushing back. So it's not really, it's not really that Napier factor. It's not that one overarching shadow. We have this continuing skirmish, if you will. We will very rapidly move on from the comments on corporal punishment, which um saw me nod vigorously because this is a radio show um but yeah people don't need me to, to rant on for another 12 hours on uh views on corporal punishment but anton is one of those accounts that's well worth reading on a number of levels yeah. uh, as you as you just outlined there i'm going to throw a chicken and egg style question at you because i'm a deeply unpleasant human being who likes to <laughs> ask horrific questions um but what do you think feeds this is it, is it that there's public demand that means more soldiers feel compelled to publish their accounts or is it that people are desperate to share their accounts which perpetuates the interest creates this perception that the interest is perhaps higher than it really is and therefore keeps that demand up and sees more people come forward to publish their their recollections so you claim to be a horrible person because of asking this chicken and the egg question i'm going to claim that i'm a horrible person because of my answer it's both <laughs> 
nicely uh, outflanked there. Thank you. I appreciate it. I can, I can, I can hear your, your, your listeners throwing their phones across the room. <laughs> Look, some demand has to be there, right? Because publishers keep publishing them. This is a business. This is not, um, you know, this, this is not charity. Um, but as early as the 1830s, we're already seeing reviews that comment on how many of these things there are, right? Despite the praise that Kincaid's Adventures in the Rifle Brigade gets, uh, the Athenaeum opens its review by heralding it as, and I quote, additional variations on that eternal thema, the Peninsular Campaign. <laughs> um, Although one, admittedly, they go on to say that distinguishes itself from the host of publications which have appeared on the subject of the war in Spain, right? They give it a glowing review, but it's really already saying, look, there's a lot of these and more of them keep coming out. Um, so there is that recognition. It's, it's sort of, um, you know, again, when I'm explaining this to my students, if they ask, this is something I don't really get to touch on, but it is, it, there are the articles that are the equivalent of, you know, is the superhero movie done? Have we, are we out? Are we, mar are we marveled out? Except it's, are we peninsula out? Um, but part of it is also that these soldiers are retiring. They're looking for ways to fill their days. They're looking for ways to supplement their income. This is especially the case, of course, for Anton, right? Um, and, and to prove that they've left their mark. Uh, and, and, you know, they look at this and they go, this is a way to do this, right? As noted, many of them are trying to make a point of one kind or another. And I really do think that there's an aspect of each inspiring the next. Oh, Kincaid wrote this and was praised for it, but I should write mine because I have this point to make, right? So it's building on, they're building on each other, even at the same time as, yeah, to continue the analogy, right? The press is screaming that we're, you know, we're, done with Marvel movies, even as Marvel movies keep grossing over a billion dollars, right? These things keep being published, people keep reading them, even as people say, can, can we not? Can you imagine if these people had Twitter? What would, oh they, what would have Kincaid been like on Twitter, honestly? I mean, honestly, I think Kincaid would have been worth following just for his turn of phrase. The one who I, who I wince being on Twitter is actually Leech, because Leech has these rants, these screeds, these tirades built into it that are really tailor-made for, for long Twitter threads. Um, you know, I think Kincaid would have at least had the courtesy to occasionally drop a good one-liner in there. Yeah, okay. Uh, so now that we, we've set the, the Twitter thing to rights, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I completely hear what you say. Um, can you imagine what Wellington would have been like on Twitter as well? Oh, that that would um, let, let's not go down that particular yeah. hold. Yeah, that's um, for some reason I'm picturing the Twitter icon of the the caricature of just the Wellington boot with his face. Like yes. that's that, that's yes. the, that's the icon right there. That's his profile picture. Yeah. <laughs> um, this is really interesting, particularly for me. And apologies, this is a slightly self indulgent um, line of questioning here, but. I looked at similar kinds of things, moods amongst the public um, for part of my MA thesis, where I was sort of trying to discern what public perception was of the Peninsula War whilst it was going on. And grappled with exactly this question that we've just been talking about of, is this about public demand? Is it about good business sense? Is it a mix of the two? Um, particularly when looking at things like caricatures and newspaper reports and being really struck about how the press tries to keep the interest going 
to the point where you see the most banal comments being printed. You know, it is rumoured to have been said by the Duke that, uh, well, he's not the Duke at this moment in time, but in relation to when he's um, at Torres Vedras, um, that if he were to pick a position to fight on, it would be the position he's in now. And it's it's almost tabloid-esque, you know, this idea that you've got nothing to say. It's, it's, the, it's the early clickbait article. It's got Wellington in the title and people will read it. So you've got that. But then at the same time, you've got things like caricatures. Now, caricature is obviously a very different medium. They're not quite the modern day cartoon that you would see in the newspaper. They're a different medium in their, in their own right. But nonetheless, they are something that has the potential to cross class boundaries because they are a visual medium. You don't necessarily have to own them in order to be able to enjoy them. You know, these things go on display in, in the shops that sell them. They find their ways into taverns and brothels and, and even public lavatories and things. But the amount of material that's produced on the Peninsula War is relatively small in comparison when you, when you compare it to other caricatures that are being produced at the same time. So, you know, the Marianne Clark scandal explodes all over the caricatures. Yeah. Peninsula War, you get some, but not many. You know, you're sort of talking 20 that are direct references over the course of the conflict, maybe a little bit more. So what's your sense of the market pre and post Waterloo? Do you think there's a shift that happens? And if so, what do you think kind of instigates that shift? Yeah, I, I mean, I think there is. Um... Part of it is is genuinely, uh, you know, it, there's not this breaking news constantly, right? It's done. It's over with, um, and, and so there there is time to to ruminate, and there's time. The, the 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 business sense is absolutely there, right? You know, there there are fortunes made on this battle, and I don't mean at the battle itself. I mean William Bullock makes 35,000 pounds off displaying Napoleon's carriage in 1816. That was an enormous, I don't have to tell you how much money that was. It was an enormous amount of money. Um, the same thing, not quite the same amount, but the same level happens with um, uh, the Leicester Square Panorama. You know, so there are, there are moments of, you know, this is huge, this is massive. Um, and people do go to them. People want to be seen at them. When, when something enters the public consciousness that much, it becomes about being seen there as much as seeing it, right? Something we're all deeply familiar with in the era of social media. Um, so so there, is, there is absolutely that. And I think looking back on it does change. And there's also people who want to distract, right? So, you know, Waterloo becomes such a big thing for the conservatives, for the Tories. And I'm not just talking about the party, people of that, of that view. Um, a, because yes, the peninsula, the peninsula, the Napoleonic Wars are inherently a conservative victory, right? It is the old guard defeating radicalism to start with, despotism afterwards, however much you want to interplay those two, depending on your own personal views. Um, and they have this character in Wellington who becomes the avatar for conservative politics as well as for British military victory. Um, but very conveniently, it's also, if you can talk about Waterloo, if you can celebrate this, you don't have to talk about the rising grain prices. You don't have to talk about the St. Peter's Field massacre. And that's one of the reasons it becomes Peterloo, right? As the radicals are pushing back on that and going, no, hang on a second, let's weaponize this against them. Let's push back in exactly the same way. So I think there, there is that. 
to your caricature point, um, and I think it's it's very well taken, and I you, you know you you've stretched it out very much. These were public things, even when they weren't purchased. Um, it's funny because you mentioned sort of right twenty caricatures, roughly. Um, you know, at least a few of them about the piece of Amiens, and then going on from there. If you look at if you look at it, really, I would argue that there's more caricatures of military men in the 18 teens, 20s, and 30s than there are in the 18 noughts and early teens. Um, and part of it is because once the war is won, they can start making fun of them for doing ridiculous things again. Um, and you have people admittedly doing ridiculous things, right? You, you've, you've got uh, some of the pushes in, in uniforms and things like that uh, that go nuts. <laughs> Um, so, I, you know, I think, I think that's definitely part of it. And I think there is, there's a, it, the piece opens up the criticism again in criticism, criticizing the army, criticizing the military. Um, and it also means that the war, Waterloo especially, in a, in a way automatically immediately becomes the good old days. Um, and, and so there is that sort of inher inherent looking back as well. What a great answer. Um, you make a really nice point, actually, that the caricature is there to ridicule, right? And when you, I just kind of pause and think about it, the ones that immediately spring to mind are the ones that seize upon an opportunity to ridicule somebody, albeit perhaps to then sort of quietly make a, a slight nod to others who have managed to uphold inverted commas, British values as such as British values existed back then, but predominantly swirl around notions of honour, um, or at least martial honour. Um, key example there being the Convention of Sintra, which causes a massive pile on uh, with everybody taking a chunk out of Sir Hugh de Rimple for yeah. in, in negotiating and signing it. Um, and there's also a very prominent one in the wake of uh, Volcran, I believe, where they talk about how... Um, the, the, the troops on that expedition lacked uh, an Abercrombie, uh, a, Welling, a Wellesley with them. Mm -hmm. um, so again, kind of that, that slant on, it's, it's hard to take the mick when things are going relatively well. Um, yeah. And as you say, you know, kind of Wellington being at the forefront of that. The, the, the flip side is that they then just ridicule the French, but there's only so many times you can do a, a caricature based on a, a Frenchman being bayoneted up the backside and, and it's going to get laughs, you know, the, the joke gets old. It does, um, it does. One of my favorite examples of this, uh, by the way, just to throw a, a bit of detail on this is um, William Heath, well-known caricaturist um, who goes, goes to town on dandified officers in the late teens and twenties in some of the best caricatures, like right down to, um, holding sabers in such a way that they appear to be drooping phalli, right? It's perfect. But at the same time is producing right at the, at the end of the war, he's producing the illustrations for historical military and naval anecdotes, the martial achievements of Great Britain and the wars of Wellington. And those illustrations are so different because they are, they are, they are upholding their, you know, British military honor. They are masculine. They're not exaggerated. They're very sort of kept in check. Uh, and that that difference is crucial, right? It is, yeah, it, it's the difference between taking the mick and who you're taking the mick of. Um, and also, yeah, pushing back, I think a little bit on officers who 
and Heath is he, he's, Heath is particularly notable for the fact that most of his caricatures, the officers don't sport the Waterloo Medal. Right, he's he's pushing non-Waterloo veterans, and I think you can argue that it's going after Peninsula. I think personally that what he's doing is he's saying these are the new recruits that are trying to make up for their lack of bloodiness. They're, they haven't seen the elephant. Um, and instead they're draping themselves in ivory. Interesting. I guess we should move it on from caricatures because there's so much else for us to talk about, but I could discuss this with you all night. Um, let's talk about visits to the battlefield, shall we? Um, which ties in very nicely with an episode that I recorded uh, earlier this month uh, looking at tourism to Waterloo. And my immediate question, I guess, is why? Because this does get absorbed into the Grand Tour. Is that partly, you know, ease, geographic proximity? You, you hop across the channel, you go to Brussels, and then from Brussels, you can head down very quickly to Waterloo and then move on to somewhere like Paris or, or wherever it might be. Um, or is it that the battles, the battlefield itself, Waterloo, is compact, different stories for, for Ligny and, and you know, if you're going to do the, the journey from Wavre and all the rest of it, but if you're going to do Waterloo Fields and kind of be seen there, which is part of the point of this, then that's nice and easy in inverted commas to do if you have the money. Or is this, you know, this kind of sense that if you're British, you've just got to go. It's, it's almost sort of place of pilgrimage. This is the new inverted commas Jerusalem for those who claim to take pride in, in the nation and its achievements. Yeah, it, no, it, it's all of that. <laughs> uh, proximity absolutely plays a part. You just came back from Waterloo. I don't have to tell you how quickly you get there and back. Absolutely. Um, you know, and, and, and as you say, proximity to Brussels, to civilization, right? You don't need to stay on the battlefield. You can tour it in an afternoon and then go back to your nice hotel that caters to English gentlemen or ladies. Um, so yeah, proximity is, is absolutely there. Um, Britons feel closer to the Dutch and Belgians, right? It's partially that proximity, especially after the Belgian Revolution. Uh, they look at Belgium as sort of a mini Britain, right? They've got a liberal constitution. The Industrial Revolution is going nuts. Um, it feels like a little Britain. So there's, there's definitely that part of it. Um, part of it is the opening up of, of Europe again. The Grand Tour kicks back on. Um, but the tour itself shifts as power, power dynamics in Europe change. Um, you know, it's not just about art and getting drunk. It's about making those important diplomatic contacts, contacts and that changes, right? Suddenly the contacts in Spain are much less useful than they might've been. The contacts in the Netherlands, Belgium and Prussia are much more useful than they were, right? Paris is always there, you know, you can't escape it. Um, so it, it is, it is that, and again, yes, the compact nature is crucially important. It is one afternoon. It's an easy sell. It's within a day trip of Brussels, uh, you know, it, that, that whole, it, the mini break, right? It's, it's, it's a version of that. Uh, but then yes, there is absolutely sort of this, this peer pressure, right? Um, one, one visitor refers to it as, as embarking on the great English pilgrimage. Uh, someone else says, uh, when, he when, he when he tells a, a Belgian um, 
carriage driver to take him there, that the Belgian um, says, of course, Monsieur, with the tone of someone taking someone home again. Right now, the Belgian obviously thought nothing of the sort. He was just very happy for the gold sovereigns. Um, but that, that that reads into it. Yeah, I, I think there's a sense that if the British keep visiting, then they can, in effect, maintain ownership. It's fake it till you make it. And so it's part of doing one's bit for the country is going to Waterloo. Um, there is the sense of history and sacrifice. And there is also the fact that something momentous happened there and you can see it, right? Hugo, they adore Hugomont because it's a ruin, because it's interesting, right? It's right there with Marathon and with uh, ancient Greece and with what has been coined as Thanatourism, right? The tourism of death. Um, but yeah, that, that, that pressure is, is absolutely there, right? There is, and one of my favorite examples of this is, is Thackeray, again, ever, ever the, the, the desire to be, um, contrary. He notes in his little travels and roadside sketches, right? I thought to myself, what a fine idea it will be in, in day after days to say that I have been to Brussels and never seen the field of Waterloo, right? He's, he's, he loves, you can, you can sense that, that, cheer of watching the faces gape over the dinner table. What, what did you do? But he cracks, he, he maintains it's because Belgium, because Brussels is boring after a couple of days, but the pressure is still there and he cracks. Um, and what he says, right, this is another quote. Well, though I made a vow not to talk about Waterloo either here or after dinner, there is one little secret admission that one must make after seeing it. Let an Englishman go and see that field and he never forgets it. And he even italicizes never forgets it, right? It's, there's a power there. There's absolutely a power there. And how much of that is the field itself and what occurred there? And how much of that is what we've been told occurred there? All of those legends. Um, that's, that's a question for a thousand psychologists to debate, right? And sociologists to debate. But the power is there. It's, it's, it's half the field and it's half the feeling of standing in um, Twickenham when England scores a try, right? That roar, the roar in, in Millennium or Principality Stadium when, when Callum Land starts playing or the French start singing La Marseillaise, right? It's that. It's that power as well. So yeah, it's, it's all of those things. <laughs> Wow. Um, yes, because I've I've stood at Waterloo and and pondered the same question um, on any number of trips out there, and it, it's in it's impossible to put your finger on. Right, it is just a bit of landscape. It's farmland. That's all it is. And yet, because of what we know about what happened there, or is it because of the significance that we place upon it? It feels somehow different yeah. and, and there's no quite putting your finger on what exactly it is. Um, I don't know if it's just me, but I don't get quite the same feeling at Ligny. Don't know why. It's, it's bizarre. I, I mean, I think, it's, I think it's partially, honestly, I think it's partially the country you were born and raised in. I think you're probably right. Yeah. And, and it is also partially just the fact that much too... It's a, it's a damn shame, in all honesty. There isn't the amount written about Ligny that there is about Waterloo. Should that be fixed? Absolutely. 100%. But 
it does it does play a factor it does play a part can i just ask about the impact of all of this let's call it waterloo tourism um because in one sense i'm sure the the, the belgians are delighted that all of these rich englishmen are coming over and they, they as you say you know they want to hand out their their gold and thank you very much we'll we'll take your money but is this indulgence seen as a bit vulgar as a bit unpartable you know if you're french and you know a, a bunch of english gentlemen pitch up and they're waxing lyrical about the fact that they've spent three days in brussels and they toured waterloo and wasn't it a wonderful sight to to see when napoleon was uh, defeated that that's not great diplomacy right there so do you get this sense of people sort of going oh what is it about the british and flaming waterloo uh yeah, there are absolutely people who do that, right? I think in general, it's a com- they're viewed as a, com- a combination of bemusement and opportunity, right? There is, yeah, and as you, as you said, um, Waterloo is a rich town, right? Uh, I believe you said that before we started recording, so apologies uh, to, to uh, those listening, but it is a very rich town. It wasn't in, 19- in 1814. And a lot of that is because of that tourism, right? So Britons drunk on national pride are much more easily convinced to pay good money for transport, for guides, and for a strip of air quotes Anglesey's boot, or air quotes again, genuine round shot or other souvenirs, right? So yeah, money plays a a huge part. Um, Were there people that judged the British for this? Absolutely, especially I think in... France, right? If you're going, you know, because that's the way to do it. You start in Brussels, you do Waterloo, and then you head into Paris, which is really probably not the best way to do it, as as you say. Yeah, the the diplomacy is not there. Um, But it is worth noting, not to the same numbers, but other nationalities are doing it as well, right? The Prussians are visiting, the French are to a certain extent visiting, the Dutch, other Germans, even Americans. Americans start to overtake the British in the mid tw- 19th century. Um, and I think anyone who was already, it, um, it just confirmed what a lot of people were thinking if they were already inclined to look at scans at the British. All right, you know, who are these goddamns? Of course they think a square mile of Flanders is theirs just because they bled on it. Um, by that argument, France owns three quarters of the eastern portion of Russia. <laughs> um, so yeah, no, I think I think that is we we do see you do see you know sort of pushback, uh, right? So um, in during the Crimean War, there's there's innumerable newspaper stories run about like let's not celebrate Waterloo quite so much because the French are now our allies. Um, and in the in the 1830s, uh, the, one of the French papers writes this screed about how the British are looking backwards and they're celebrating Waterloo, even though it's in the past and they need to move on and get over it. And the Times responds by just printing the whole article and then saying at the end, it should be noted that the French still celebrate um, Austerlitz, which was 12 years earlier. <laughs> I love this. I love the pettiness of it as well. Oh, oh yes. um, that That's part of the beauty of, of these stories. Um, I suppose we should keep the momentum going, shouldn't we? Much though I just want to stop and, and dwell on this more. Um, reenactment, that's that's mm. the next place to go. In fact, you open with this, don't you? Um, in, in On the very first page of the yeah. book, because we have a particular image of, of reenactment today. You know, 
folks with with you know recreated uniforms spending their spare time you know sort of trying to create that feel for the period for the georgians and victorians this is a very very different phenomenon and it's a very different spectacle because we are talking large-scale recreations so talk us through the scale of this because i was really struck by what you said about voxel particularly going to town on this yeah these are these are massive undertakings and they must have been incredible to watch right um they they always remind me to a certain extent just in those sheer level of of just insane spectacle uh they remind me of um those stories of the Colosseum in ancient rome being flooded to reenact naval battles right it's that level of extra if you want to use the modern terminology for voxel 1827 is the apogee right 1827 they are deciding they're going to rehaul voxel and they convert a roughly a sixth of it is permanently converted into a natural stage that is known for the rest of Vauxhall's career as the Waterloo ground. Um, they run it with gas lines and on it, a thousand men, many veterans reenact the battle while those sunken pipes fuel explosion, explosions and let Hugomont burn nightly, right? It's ridiculous. The production is staged multiple times a week until late August. Um, and other versions, not quite so lavish, but with added equestrian elements or other attractions such as an electric lights, which were then the brand new thing, or even a Congreve rocket hammered very carefully into the ground to make sure it doesn't burn half of London, <laughs> are sort of shown off. Um, Vauxhall receives complaints about this, right? There's a, there's a, bitter old undersheriff who writes a letter to the, I think it's the Times, it might be the Morning Post, um, complaining that the noise level from this reenactment is akin to the to an army cannonading a town. Um, and there are others who see this and then go see Waterloo itself and are sort of like, this is disappointing. Why isn't it like Vauxhall? Oh dear, oh dear. This is, this is like, you know, <laughs> read the novel before you watch the film. Sort yeah, of, sort of. Exactly. I don't know why we're doing all of these modern parallels today, but it's just so striking how you can draw those parallels, right? And and it's it's the same kind of conditions coming out of it again. Yeah, I do. I do want to note uh, one thing on this, which is uh, that while Vauxhall was the standout, right? One of the things that that makes this kind of special um, is, is that the actual British Army also does this kind of thing. They still do, right? See Jubilee celebrations this past weekend. See, but also, I don't know if, I don't know if you ever were lucky enough to attend the Royal Tournament when it was still going on. Um, it was mostly a 90s and I think 80s thing, but they did these sort of re very small scale reenactments of, of these things. Um, detachments of four, from four regiments um, reenacted the battle on the heights overlooking Chatham in 1833. Uh, as part of both the anniversary and the launching of the 120-gun first-rate HMS Waterloo. Um, and we have mentions of other reenactments during in inspections, parades, and field days. Uh, so it is, it, it's not just civilians, right? The, the army itself is doing this one way or another. Um, so yeah, I think, I think it, it builds off that. And there's this effort to like, let's try and make this even bigger than the actual army is doing. Um, and yeah, gas lines and explosions do help with that. 
Yeah, they certainly do. It has that sort of Hollywood-esque feel, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, we should say, though, that it's not just about reenactments. Stage shows go absolutely ballistic. And we were talking early on about, you know, Victoria and uh, um, Beethoven putting together his, his performance. Exactly. But then when it gets, and you have, you know, equivalents, obviously there are, there are plays about Salamanca and, and so on. But this, this is different. Um, shall we talk about precedent first of all? You know, how much precedent is there for this kind of thing? Because it's not unknown, but Waterloo is unique in yeah. terms of scale, if nothing else. Yeah, no, there absolutely is precedent, right? Uh, London sees theatrical spectacles that um, purported to recreate how close they are is, is a matter of debate. Uh, the Battle of the Nile, Trafalgar, the Siege of Flushing, Talavera, Badajoz, Vittoria, all of these. Um, you see panoramas as well of Napoleon's burning of Moscow and the retreat from Russia, right? There are even scholars that have made the argument that, um, that panoramas especially were effectively the newsreels of the 19th century. So there is absolutely precedent. But yeah, Waterloo does sort of take this and run. Uh, and what makes Waterloo unique, again, is the timing, right? So the Nile, Trafalgar, Flushing, Talavera, Badajoz, Vittoria are all produced within a year of all those events, sometimes within four or six months of those events. Um, there, but there was always the next big thing, right? So you produce the one on you know, Talavera or Talavera and then Badajoz comes along and then Victoria, you know, it, it builds. And then, you know, you get the, you get the, the siege of Gibraltar, uh, you know, in the six, in the seven years war, giving way to other things in the Napoleonic Wars and, and things like that. There's always the next big thing. There was no next big thing looming after Waterloo. Are there political developments? hundred percent but you're not going to take a panorama or a stage show about the battle and replace it with one about the Congress of Vienna. As much fun as it would have been to be there, right? You know, Europe doesn't march towards diplomacy, it dances, right? It's that famous quote, that was a party. Um, but from looking in on the outside, the battles are the big thing. And so because there's nothing coming up after it to push it along, it's allowed to marinate. Um, the most successful Waterloo stage show, J.H. Amherst's uh, Hippodrama, The Battle of Waterloo, which was one of the crown jewels of Astley's Royal Amphitheater, opened in 1824 and ran for 144 consecutive performances, which is not a bad run by modern West End standards, in all honesty. Um, it was revived the next year and multiple times after that. From 1829 on, it was and it was annually added to whatever else they were doing around the anniversary. Um, it tours the United Kingdom as far away as New York City and Boston, uh, where it causes one critic in New York to lament it from taking away uh, business from legitimate theater because some things never change. Um, and it's still playing regularly in the, in the 1850s, right? So it is huge. Um, and even when potential competitors come along, it's had enough time. It's, it's become part of it enough uh, that it's become established and can hold them off, right? So in 1828, a theatrical recreation of the Battle of Navarino was actually pulled from Astley's 
to make room for the Battle of Waterloo to come back on. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's, it's hugely popular. And it is, it's a, it is a big thing. And of course, that stage show in a way that, you know, sort of the Voxel show doesn't have throws in our standards. The hero is a hero, is a corporal in um, the Highlanders named Corporal Steadfast. Um, and, uh, you know, his, his, uh, his, his, his fiance dresses as a Highlander and follows him to war and ends up saving him. And it, there's, there's the romance portion as well. And there's comic relief and all of that, but it, it is centered around the battle. And it's, so we've talked about, you know, shows, but Madame Two Swords is involved as well, right? And, and we should, you know, say she's partly helped, or the institution is partly helped there by Wellington's patronage. But talk us through what's happening there and the impact that that has. Yeah, because Wellington goes a lot. If I yeah, remember Wellington, right. Wellington is an enormous fan. Um, he has a standing order for the museum to let him know whenever a new figure of exceptional interest was added to the exhibition, which I adore. It's like a mailing list of the 1830s. Um, he's the only non-royal listed by name as a patron on the cover of their 1851 catalog. Um, and yeah, he poses for I think it's two or three waxworks of himself throughout his life. Uh, and I'm 95% sure that he also is responsible for um, Hill and Anglesey posing for their own waxworks, or at least opening the door for that, right? Uh, so yeah, no, he's, he's a big fan. Um, we tend to think of Tussauds in the modern world as celebrity, right? It's, it's, um, it's actors, it's things like that, it's sporting heroes and that, but from at the beginning, it was about history, right? She first comes to the UK in 1802 during the Peace of Amiens. She's invited to basically guest spot at the Lyceum Theatre, I think it is, in London, um, and finds her success with a collection of death masks and others from the French Revolution, right? Um, and then the war starts up again and she's trapped in the UK and she starts touring. Um, and so when when she decides, you know what, you know, let's just like let's make London our permanent home. She moves in. She and her sons by this point move into the Baker Street Bazaar in 1835. Um, they lead with their history, right? The first big thing they advertise is um, a new display of ten figures of the great men from the late war. So you know we've got Wellington, we've got Napoleon, we've got Nelson, of course. Uh, Blucher, uh, Marshalls, Marat, Ney, and Bernadette, Bernadotte, 
um, Alexander I of Russia, Francis II of Austria, and Frederick William III of Prussia, all in uniform. So they're leading with this, right? And it evolves from this. These figures are supp supplemented by an entire room, what becomes known as the Golden Chamber, uh, or and dedicated to Napoleon and the conflict, right? It's anchored around this Napoleon's deathbed, what becomes known as the Shrine of Napoleon, um, and um, multiple sort of relics, most notably the carriage that he traveled to the battle in uh, and partially away from. <laughs> um, and then they add other things as well, right? You, you get like his toiletries and gloves and cloaks and things like that. But it becomes this huge draw. And it, it, they get, they, it's so big that it's a modest fee, but they charge extra for it. It's not included in basic admission. Um, and I think Wellington does play a part in that, right? He poses for his own waxwork. He gives them the details of his clothes and basically uses his presence uh, and influence to ensure that his likeness was not only accurate, but dignified and met with his approval, right? It's a, it's a semi-permanent rebuttal in wax to the inherently temporary criticisms leveled at him during the Great Reform Act, for example. Right, you know, that goes away. People get their vote and it, it, they forget about that, but they go into Tussauds and there he is in all his glory. First as part of that, that, um, uh, that diorama and then he's later made into one with the representations of Victoria and Albert bestowing on him the glories that his nation gives him that he deserves. Uh, even when he dies, Tussauds erects a shrine of Wellington, much like Napoleon's, but that one doesn't have a separate cost. It's right by the entrance where no one could miss it. So yeah, it's it's a big part. I'm gonna ask about the, the self-interest that may or may not be on display there in, in just a moment. But before we get that, I just wanna probe a little bit more on Wellington and his role here, because there are multiple ways of looking at this, aren't there? On the one hand, there's the Waterloo Banquet, which is a kind of focal point of, of celebration of victory. On another, there's his comments about too many Prussians being on the Cyborn model, which is a very different uh, kind of influence. And yet when asked what his greatest victory was, Waterloo wasn't on the list. You know, we, we keep kind of batting it backwards and forwards between Asai and Salamanca in particular. So what is his influence? I mean, obviously it's all of those things because those are the things that come out of his mouth. And those are the things that he does. But is there a set, an overarching sense or is it like a lot of stuff with Wellington that there are, there are so many things that he does that get recorded that it's very hard to, to pick a definitive line? I mean, you know, there's, there's definitely a shift, right? If you read the Waterloo Dispatch and it's, uh, you know, I, would, I wouldn't pay, I would not be credited if I wasn't paid tribute to the relief I saw had when Blucher and the Prussians showed up. 20 years later, he's asked and his answer is simply, I beat them. <laughs> um, Wellington becomes both the avatar of the victory and the ultimate arbiter um, of if a given recreation commemoration spectacle is accurate. So he's got these, he's got these dual roles, but they do feed into each other, right? So through things like the Waterloo Banquet, uh, he ensures that he and his chosen officers remain at the center of the anniversary um, and commemoration. 
and that it's the anchor of that. He, he ensures that people remind, are reminded that it is still a military victory and it is still his day, uh, right? And this, this especially builds as both the lavishness of, and the press coverage of, these, of that event increases over time, right? There's one newspaper uh, that I had to be talked out of using this as the title of my first article, which is on the banquet, dismisses these as gold-plated military orgies which is one of the best descriptions I've ever encountered. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you can kind of see the point as well. That, that's absolutely. why it works so well. Yes. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, so there's that part of it. Simultaneously, he's using his patronage, right? And that's patronage in both the traditional aristocratic sense and the um, modern attendance sense to boost depictions of the battle he approves of particularly the ones that center him, the ones that have the narrative that he wants and pans those that he doesn't, right? So we find him opening doors for Jan William Paimon, for William Salter. Um, he ships Copenhagen across the English Channel just so Lawrence can paint him. Um, and, uh, and of course, Madame Tussauds, as we've talked about, and attends Astley's Vauxhall Waterloo panoramas to give his support. Um, but he deliberately withholds that approval from Cyborn because of the number of Prussians on that model, right? And there's no question that he knows what he's doing, right? You, if you look at the reports, the reports of, um, it's Astley's in particular, the day after he goes, their ad, changes completely and it's by appointment of, with the approval of his grace, the Duke of Wellington. Um, and on the other side, right, he's asked by the Countess of, of Wilton in 1840 why he never saw Cyburn's model. And he straight up says he, he was unwilling to give any sanction to the truth of such a representation in this model, which must have resulted from my visiting it. So he knows full well what he is doing, right? Um, so yeah, no, he's, he's, he's pushing it. He's pushing one view um, or multiple views, right? And he's not just doing it for him. He's also doing it for his officers. He's ensuring that people like Hill and Anglesey once he got over the marriage um, and um, you know uh, Harding and Colburn or Seton and Maitland um, can still benefit from, from their position as well. As for the, the victory question, um, or do you want to jump in here? You were sort of leaning towards the microphone. Yeah, this is the choice of a radio show. You guys don't normally get this kind of insight, but yes, um, I was because I, I wanted to pick up on the, the self-interest element here. Uh, perhaps we'll, we'll circle back around to, to you know, the greatest victory thing um, yeah. because it, it's worth talking about. But mm -hmm. this, I mean, Wellington, he's a famously arrogant man on occasions. Um, that, that's not a secret. He talks about yep. on one occasion the finger of providence being upon him. And um, personally, I've always questioned whether the, his description of Napoleon as the greatest captain in Europe being a case of false modesty, because it immediately opens the door for people to say, "Ah, oh, but what about Waterloo?" And he can sort of go, "Ah, oh, yes, but no, 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 really, really, Napoleon's the greatest." Even though I beat him, because this that's is the thing. there's that element to his character. He is yeah. the sort of person who would absolutely have done that. Yeah. So is this about him kind of puffing up his own reputation and kind of making people aware that he is the one 
who topples the inverted commas Corsican ogre of of British propaganda. And you know everybody kind of exalts Napoleon for his uh, prowess on the battlefield. And yet, when faced with the Duke of Wellington, was found wanting. Is that a, a good chunk of what's happening here? Yeah, uh, yeah. There's there's absolutely a lot of self interest here. I will I will point out as I as I've just said that there's also folded in with that is interest to his cadre of officers, right? His favorite chosen veterans. Um, uh, he liked being important. And as you say, felt that that was his due, that he that, that importance and respect had been earned, that he did what he did and that he deserved those honors. From the start, he knows Waterloo is going to be important. And he controls that narrative, right? The there's the, the, the Waterloo versus La Belle Alliance, right? Blucher says, hey, this is the perfect name. And he's like, yes, it is, great. Writes, runs back to his dispatch box, writes it from Waterloo to guarantee that he controls that name, right? Um, and he's, he's, he's not a dumb man. He's a very intelligent man. Um, and he understands that if the memory of Waterloo becomes a crucial part of British national identity, or British creation myth, right? And he's orchestrated it so that he's seen as the avatar of and the reason for that victory, then he becomes part of that British national identity slash creation myth. The old revolt of the ultra Tories after the Catholic Emancipation, the Great Reform Act, all of that be damned. He's in there, he's locked, he's in the bank. So that's a huge part of it. The Napoleon thing is tricky, right? Because it's not just the greatest captain comment. It's the three and a half meter tall nude statue of the man in the stairwell at Apsley House. It's his repeated visits to Tussaud's shrine of Napoleon, right? I'm not a psychologist, uh, nor am I a strict Wellingtonian scholar, right? I bow to Rory Muir on that one above all else. Um, but I can't help but think that to at least a certain extent, rivalry with Napoleon was baked into Wellington just as the rivalry with France was baked into the Britain he grew up with. And through that lens, it makes sense. Napoleon was the greatest captain of the age, which leaves unsaid, as you say, I beat him. Canova carves a massive statue of Bonaparte as the literal god of war, holding victory in the palm of his hand, and Wellington installs it in his house, extending his ownership over that depiction, that piece. Um, the meditative visits to Napoleon's deathbed become part of Wellingtonian legend, paying tribute to a fallen foe while also reinforcing the notion that Napoleon was the only rival close to Wellington's genius, right? For the glory of Waterloo to truly shine as bright as it can, Napoleon has to be as good as he was. He has to be the world's conqueror because only then can Wellington be the conqueror of the world's conqueror. And to jump back to, to, the, to the Waterloo question, you know, versus aside, because it fits in really neatly there, um, it's strategic, right? Everyone asks him what's his greatest victory and everyone expects him to say Waterloo. So they're surprised when he doesn't. So it automatically registers, right? If he says Waterloo, it's like, oh yeah, that's expected. They might've forgotten it. Because he doesn't, they feel like they've missed a step. There's that, what? Okay. But at the same time, so it remembers it and he looks modest, as you say. But at the same time, he does much bolder things in other battles, right? 
Waterloo, even he admits it, is a slogging match. He chooses, he chooses the perfect ground for it. He manages his troops and his resources impeccably. He is cautious. He doesn't spend lives like water. But at the same time, it lacks the boldness or the elan of Assay or Salamanca. Right? And I think that's part of it is, is if, he, if he says Waterloo, people aren't going to be surprised, but the know-it-alls that are trying to catch him be like, ah, yes, but what about what you did? What about when you smashed through the French at that one golden moment at Salamanca? Um, he, he strips them, he pulls, he, pull, he's, he, um, he denies them their chance, right? He, he steals their thunder. That's the word I was, the, the phrase I was looking for. Um, and so he leaves them without a response. So yeah, it is, it's, it, it, it's, it's about legacy. It's about his own importance and that of his officers and that of the battle, right? And I think to at least a, a tiny extent, he is justifying this as this is the way I preserve the memory of all the men who died for me, all the men I sent to their deaths. Do you think he feels that keenly? Uh, because uh, th there are two ways of looking at that, uh, two ways of looking at everything in this interview, it would seem. But um, I've said on a number of occasions that, you know, whilst I, despite appearances, do not laud Wellington as, you know, the paragon of all virtue uh, on many levels, particularly politically and in some of his social actions, I find him incredibly unpalatable. But the one area where you can say he is... Uh, fundamentally different from Napoleon in in a very positive sense is the way in which he handles his troops and you said it yourself this is not Wellington is not a man who expends his men's lives like water he is very frugal and we have the famous instances don't we Badahoff uh, where he, he's weeping in the breaches we've also got the sense that he is visibly shaken uh, post Waterloo whether you're getting it from Creevy and him saying the same phrases over and over again in that kind of almost shell shock, as we might refer to it today, sense. Um, also, the, the letters that he writes, um, I'm thinking to Lord Aberdeen when Gordon dies and he's talking in part about his staff. There is also this sense that he's talking about the army as a whole. So there is that thing that he does feel that human loss. At the same time, Wellington, a highly intelligent man, as we've said, knows that sacrifices have to be made in war and he was one who had great disdain for the lower classes so does he feel keenly that or is there evidence to suggest that he feels keenly that the memory has to be got right for the benefit of all of those who died so this is this is tricky because there is evidence that he's pushing that, but the question then becomes, is it because he feels that that's the only way to honor the fallen or is it because of the self-importance, the self-aggrandizement, right? It is tricky and, it, and it's, it's a hard one. It's one that I would dearly love to sit down and debate with Muir and Esdale and you know, the other titans of our field, right? The other marshals, not to piss them off completely by giving them that title. Um, it's tricky and it is it, he was also published and be damned besides an intensely private human being in a lot of ways and he also fully was fully aware that 
that everything of him that came out was going to be seized on, right? That was going to be dissected. Um, in that sense, actually his closest uh, uh, parallel is not really Napoleon, it's actually Washington. Washington had exactly that same understanding and knew exactly how to use it, right? The whole citizen soldier finishes the battle. No, I don't, I'm gonna be back to being a farmer. I will wait until I am called to go into politics and, and all of that and the whole moral suasion thing. Um, so yeah, Wellington, Wellington knows that everyone's looking at him. But I think there is, yeah, he is, he's clearly, to, at least to a certain extent, traumatized by some of this. Uh, by the losses, whether it's of, as you say, the, the thousands of the lower classes, uh, or whether it's by the losses of his nearest and dearest that are effectively his campaigning family, right? We, we all know fighting alongside someone changes something in you, right? Even those of us who have never served, we know it on an abstract level. Uh, so yeah, it's hard to say which, but I think there is at least a little bit of that. We do have to keep moving things on. Uh, I, every time I, I pause, I'm, I'm just struck at the, the, not only the depth of your knowledge, but the, the richness of this topic. Um, wow, because we're, we're not done yet and we're, we're an hour and a quarter in. Um, so folks, if there's a reason to be impressed by this guy, just pause and consider the fact that he's done 75 minutes in one take, I might add. Nothing has needed to be cut so far, which is even more impressive. Um, and he's making me work for my money as well, which is incredible. Um, but let's let's keep the, the momentum going. Um, lasting legacy. It's not just memory. It's not just print culture. It's it's physical, isn't it? it there are marks on the landscape, monuments, memorials being erected in churches, on hills, um, in the most remote of locations, you know, in, in, you know, hills in Yorkshire where the entirety of the surrounding valleys can look and see this lasting dedication to Waterloo. Obviously you've got place names. What's the motive behind this? Because this isn't Wellington who does this, this is the nation. And these are funded often by local subscriptions, which is significant. So why? Is this about commemoration? Is it celebration? Is it about trying to curry favour, to be seen to be doing the right thing? You know, person X contributed £30 to the fund to produce this obelisk. Um, and so, you know, they're a, a, the, the right sort of fellow that you want to associate with. And we might uh, be interested in, in um, patroning their, their business in future. Is, is there... All of that, I suppose the answer is inevitably going to be yes, to an extent. What, what predominates, though? What, what really comes to the fore out of it? Yeah, I mean, it is, it is all of that. I mean, the first thing, the first thing worth noting here is that, is that Waterloo is actually a watershed, right? It's the last time, really, a battle rather than an entire conflict is singled out as that moment for remembrance, right? We go from... The, the obelisks to Waterloo to the guards memorial for the entirety of the Crimea, right? And also it's the final time really that we see remembrance truly take the form of uncomplicated triumphant celebration. This isn't Remembrance Day, 
right? Yes, there are, you know, you see the toasts to the memory of those who fall, fell, and they're always drunk in silence, but it's still not, it's nowhere near that, right? We are not at the wreath of poppies at the cenotaph in the tomb of the unknown soldier or the eternal flame. Uh, and yeah, there is, there's absolutely personal motivation going on here, right? There, no, it's, not, it's not even just the, the obelisks. Um, the Waterloo Fund publishes subscribers constantly. And that's a big deal, right? That's how you prove it's performative patriotism. Um, but on the, on the level, this is all deeply political, right? So we have monuments in Scotland and Ireland that reinforce the notion that they were crucial to the victory and thus that they are crucial, they're a crucial part of the union, right? Scotland especially puts those statues up and goes, hey, those Highlanders, the fact that we contribute an enormous percentage to the East India companies um, and the Indian service after that bureaucracy, right? That's where they go. Um, all of that is driving that. Uh, in Ireland, you have the added push of Waterloo being used as an argument for Catholic emancipation. Hey, the large numbers of Catholics died for this. The least we can do is give them the ability to, you know, stand in, stand for parliament or some, you know, hold local office even. The local thing is fascinating though, because pushes for a national monument, whether it's a giant pyramid, a pantheon, or even a cenotaph, get bogged down with questions of inter-service rivalry. You know, what about the Navy? What about Trafalgar? Or questions of inter uh, other battles. You know, what about Victoria? What about Trafalgar? Um, or questions of appropriateness as a whole. Should we commemorate this or should we be building churches and things like that? And they end up, yes, they do end up building churches. Um, because there's no big national thing going on outside of Waterloo Bridge, which is a private venture anyway, right? Parliament gives them the, the permission to rename it, but it is a private venture. Um, commemoration becomes local, which exposes it to an entirely different set of rivalries, politics, ulterior motives, right? Towns compete with each other in displays of performative patriotism, in business, in levels of fashion, right? You know, you, 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 you create a Waterloo crescent, crescent and a Wellington house, and that draws people to live there. It draws business to live there, um, live there, to operate there. You, you're pushing back and forth. We all know, we've all been to those towns where the biggest event of the year is the local cricket or rugby or football match against the next town, right? It, you know, it, there is that, there's that push and this is a way to, to push back against that. And it's also a way to fold it in to, to the local, as I said, yeah, to, to the local. And as you very correctly point out, right? We have Waterloo Glassworks, Waterloo Baths, Waterloo Breweries, numerous number of Waterloo public houses and taverns and hotels. Um, is part of that a draw? Absolutely. But I think part of it is also, this is how we as a town, as a family, as a business, memorialize this, mark this. Sadly, we do have to start looking at wrapping this episode up. Um, I could go on talking to you for about a year, but I'm not <laughs> sure that my dear listeners will um, go with me on that. I, I nearly had a riot on my hands with a four hour episode 
um, on most irritating myth. Um, I'm not sure they'll they'll indulge me again. That needs um, to be a top ten YouTube clickbait video. Clearly, well, I mean that was the idea behind it. But um, I mean the, the the performance stats are good, but but they ain't you know in the hundreds of thousands. Yeah, fair enough. Um, but no, let's be serious for a moment. Um, and I've got two horrifically broad questions. I'm going back to being that deplorable interviewee type person again. Um, when we take all of this as a whole, what do you think this tells us about early 19th century society in Britain? You know, I know you could talk about that for about a week, yeah. but go for it. <laughs> the specific question, excellent. All right. So this is a country right, that in 1815 has defined itself for at least a quarter of a century, if not arguably an entire century, by its enemies. It has used rivalry with France externally and Protestantism internally to forge three kingdoms and a principality into a united kingdom. Arguments about resentments, religion, etc., notwithstanding. That United Kingdom with a national creation myth and an ideal other. And that's other in the, in the academic sense. Then it wins. In some ways, this is amazing, right? We're staring down this, a century of British hegemony, a century in which it is unequivocally a, if not the great power. In other ways, however, they're left feeling like they've missed a step. How do they define themselves now? And we know what the answer to this becomes. They define themselves and justify their superiority through their economic and scientific achievements, uh, through their liberal constitution, through things like um, abolishing the slave trade, that arguably also in scare quotes when you talk about the East India Company, um, and through their empire and their civilizing mission. Again, scare quotes. Waterloo commemoration allows them to bridge that gap. It allows them to hold on to the past as they find their new future. It gives them justification for portions of their new superiority, the liberal enlightened nation standing in defiance of both radicalism and despotism, um, their sons bled for Europe and by the more nationalistic views saved it on their own, right? Um, so they get to have a say in what Europe does and they feel that they have carte blanche access to the world for imperial purposes. Simultaneously through this, we also begin to see the characteristics that define Victorian Britain. Personal consumption and travel, advertising, spectacle, looking to the future by, by appearing to look at the past, right? Defining themselves as what they did as well as what they're doing. All of this is wrapped up in it. Um, and as you say, I can, I can speak for a week, but that's, that's my five minute pitch for this at least. I mean, that's a hell of a five minute pitch, I gotta say. Um, so having nailed that one, here's, here's the final absolute stinker. Um, international perspective, question mark. Mm. <laughs> How does this compare 
with other nations. I mean, you literally wrote an entire book on the British perspective. You wrote a PhD on the thing. Um, so I imagine that you could easily write several books just for you know each nation that, that's involved here. But in Germany, there's this notion of the Battle of La Belle Alliance. Um, mm-hmm. I, I initially, when I drafted these questions, confidently stated that it is known as La Belle Alliance. And then having had a conversation with someone today, I'm now questioning whether or not that's particularly true. But nonetheless, that was Blücher's preferred name for the battle. When you look at the French perspective, well, they certainly won the battle for the Memorial 1815 gift shop, didn't they? As um, as a number of people uh, enjoyed my um, post art on social media. Some people didn't seem to get the joke, I have to say. Um, apologies, very small rant uh, incoming here. People, when something's tongue in cheek, you don't need to get offended by it. Um, and some poor individual took one look at it and posted, imagine being offended by the contents of a gift shop. Um, I'm afraid my self-control failed me on that occasion. I posted one of those memes um, where, you know, you've got like Superman looking all over the place and just over the top of his head goes, you missed the joke. Um, I do apologize for the the failure of decorum there, but sometimes people, you just got to calm down a little bit on social media, right? But there is this point that the French, (laughs) Napoleon wins the battle for history, right? He loses the war, he wins the battle for history. That's part of what his time on St. Helena enables him to do. So how do other nations work Waterloo into their national stories? Because I know it's a horrific question to end on, but just give us a flavour of how they try and work this into their own formation narrative. Yeah. So you want me to cue the Benny Hill music and do one sentence on each? Pretty much, yes. (laughs) Fair enough. Yeah, no, that's fair. So... First of all, uh, on on the point that you that you just threw in there about having you know conversation and then La Belle Alliance versus Waterloo in Germany, um, the second reader on my dissertation uh, was a and still is a, a, a dear friend and and, and mentor, uh, a guy by the name of Professor Benjamin Hett. He's a German historian, incredible incredible mind. Writes a book about this you know this level of detail per year and insane. Uh, no, every two years. Let's be let's be real here. Um, he was in Berlin in, on June 18th, 18, 2015. And he sent me a photo from a local German bookshop. And it was the sort of table of current events, you know, celebrate the bicentenary. And it was the bicentenary of La Belle Alliance. It wasn't Waterloo. So there is definitely people that are at least pushing it that way, one way or the other. So for Prussia, La Belle Alliance, let's, let's go with that. Um, pales in comparison to Leipzig, right? Leipzig is their lodestone. It's that one that delivers them their freedom. It opens the door to their revenge. And so that's the one that gets the shining ziggurats, the giant cenotaphs. That's the one that gets the big push, completely legitimately, right? That's the one that gives them their country back. So yes, they're the third after Britain and Hanover to erect a monument on the battlefield at Waterloo itself. Um, there was also a Belle Alliance Platz, which is a god awful combination of French and German pronunciation um, in Berlin from 1815 till 1947. But for them, La Belle Alliance is much more just another battle than it is for Britain. Leipzig is their Waterloo. 
For Hanover and the Netherlands, Waterloo was dynastic. So for Hanover, it was a way to emphasize their link with Britain, the shared monarchy, the dual crowns, um, and the service of so many Hanoverians in the King's German Legion, the courageous and brilliant service, let's be clear about that. Um, not that I'm gonna have an argument about that from you. <laughs> Absolutely um, not, I'm, I'm nodding vigorously, but it's a radio show, yeah. so folks, you don't know that, but yeah, exactly. carry on. Um, however, when the monarchies of Great Britain and Hanover split in 1837, the significance of Waterloo as a unifying moment begins to fade, right? So then it becomes much more about just the KGL, just the bravery, just the sacrifice. Um, and yeah, we have things like, you know, obviously uh, what was historically Brunswick has a big thing about Cascabra and the fall there and all of that. Uh, but that di the dynasty, the dynastic complications still tend to eat away at it after 1837. For the Netherlands, Waterloo was an opportunity to paint the Prince of Orange as a war hero, um, not only for the Dutch, but also for the Belgians, many of whom are not overly keen with their relatively new status as subjects of the House of Orange, right? They're, so it gives them that sort of like, no, 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 pay attention to this one over here. He's, he, you know, he was wounded for you. Um, that of course all ends with Belgium's independence, which cuts the Netherlands off from the field while leaving the new nation grappling with complications presented by Waterloo's continued popularity and um, sheer money-making capability on one hand, um, but the enduringly pro-French outlook of their Catholic and Francophone portions of the population on the other, right? So they've got this horrifying divide going on and how do we do this? And I, what it really comes down to is let the Americans, let the British, let the Germans, if they want to spend their money here and we will quietly fly our tricolas and that sort of thing. <laughs> um, and then we come to France, right? The, the big one. Um, I completely agree that France absolutely wore the one of the, won the war of the gift shop, right? Um, Napoleon was a master of that sort of thing. And yes, as you, as you very correctly say, right, that's what he does from St. Helena. Uh, every time I think about this and every time I go into a gift shop and I see all of those busts of Napoleon, um, I think of there's a probably apocryphal story that Mark Twain used to tell that he knew that the South had won the Civil War, the, bat, the, the, the memory of the Civil War, when he saw a Boston um, high society lady throw down her copy of Gone with the Wind on a train and loudly exclaim, those damn Yankees just burned Savannah. <laughs> and it's that kind of thing, right? So they absolutely won the war of the gift shop. But at the time, 1816, 1820, 1830, the French keep fighting the battle, but they're not fighting it as a conflict between France and the Seventh Coalition. They're fighting it between pro-Napoleonic and revolutionary forces against royalists and conservatives, who in turn paint the battle as either a glorious defeat of the avatar of liberty and progress, or a confirmation that Napoleon was nothing but a petty tyrant who had sacrificed, sacrificed a generation of Frenchmen to his own ambition, right? That's 
pick your history, right? Um, there's a wonderful quote from, from Terry Pratchett, you know, pick your own history, a snippet 10 pence, highly collectible. That's right there in, in one line. Um, in the end though, French commemoration of the battle com comes to focus and it's helped by people like Victor Hugo in this, um, comes to focus on the patriotism and the heroism of the rank and file soldiers of France because both sides can agree on that, right? Even the British can agree on that because there's no glory in Waterloo if the French are nothing but, I don't know, to quote Bernard Cornwall, a race of dancing masters, right? Um, and they, they, they concentrate on that. And that's symbolized by things like Victor Hugo's narration of Waterloo, by events such as the last stand of the old guard and the near legendary and 95% apocryphal, chance apocryphal, you know, Mont de Cabron, right? The French, the old guard never, do not surrender, they die. They die, they do not surrender. So that becomes the center of this. That becomes how they do it. That becomes how they process it. You know, it's, they don't, they don't erect the monuments until much later, A, because they're not allowed to, um, which is petty in the extreme, let's be real here. Um, but B, also because, again, to quote Hugo, the entire plain is their sepulcher. They don't need the cenotaph because the whole valley is it. And I think, yeah, that's, that's, the, um, that's the, what, 10 phrase, 10 sentence breakdown. Wow. Just wow. This has been utterly, utterly phenomenal. Um, I don't know what my listeners think. No doubt they'll let me know their thoughts in due course, but I think this is possibly the best interview I have done, period. Um, and I, I mean that from multiple perspectives. I mean that in terms of your unending enthusiasm, more than 90 minutes and not a bead of sweat, just full on uh, in terms of knowledge, in terms of engagement. I've been captivated the whole way through. I've had to work my ass off to keep up with you um, and it's been a long time since I've had to work this hard in an interview normally I prep them so that I can just kind of sit here and listen and and do follow-ups it's been blinding if ever there was an advert to to go and buy a book that was it Luke I cannot thank you enough who owned Waterloo people if you don't want to go and read it after that there's no hope for you genuinely um, it's out through Oxford University Press it came out yesterday, it came out on Waterloo Day. Um, Waterloo Day in the UK, it's August 18th in uh, the US. Okay, um, so listeners in the US, all 25% of the listenership, pre-order is an option. Um, it's, it's out through Oxford. Um, we do know this thing about academic presses and sometimes you, know, you look at the price of the hardback and go, that's a lot of money. Yes, that, that's just a, a thing. And there's nothing that you can do about that as an author. You've just got to let the market demand kind of dictate it. And there are various kind of perspectives on that. But there will be a paperback. There is there such be. a thing as the PDF version. I'm, I'm guessing that it will be available as yeah. an ebook. It's an ebook. Um, it's also going to be on Oxford Scholarship Online. So if your university or your local library has access to that, there you go. Fantastic. Um, this is absolutely worth reading. Luke, I'm not going to give you an option in this. You are coming back, uh, probably in the quite near future. 
I would love to. Um, there's, there's more to talk about here. I've got some wonderful examples of extra pettiness to dig into. Um, and if you want another sort of date suggestion, suggesting this live on air, um, well, not live, but you know what I mean. Um, my entire epilogue is on Wellington's funeral. So if you want to do that come November 18th, I am more than happy to jump on that one. Scribbling is going down in the notebook that uh, is, is the, the beating heart and the brain of this podcast. Luke, you've been utterly peerless. peerless. I cannot thank you enough for your time. People, go buy the book, Who Owned Waterloo? Out with Oxford University Press. There will be a link in the description. And Luke, thank you so much. I'm going to see you again very, very soon. I look forward to it. Thank you so much for this, Zach. And thank you for everything you do on Twitter and your own scholarship with the War, the Napoleonic War Graves Commission, uh, which is incredible work. So, you know, you are, you are one of our guiding lights and one of our brightest stars. So thank you for that. You do realize you don't have to say nice things to me just because you're on my podcast. Oh, I'm fully aware of that. But I've talked to people who, you know, that, you know, I mentioned your name uh, that, that I was doing this interview and their whole faces lit up. Right. So. I again, thank goodness for once. This is a radio show because I am blushing right now. That's very generous of you, Luke. Um, but seriously, uh, I am I am in awe of what you've just done because I couldn't do it. Very few people could do it. And it's it's such a great advert for the future of our discipline that people like you are there just launching your careers and it filled me with massive massive excitement well that is very kind of you and uh yes thank you thank you to your listeners they are they are the reason we do this right is to because there is this people read this people are interested in this people reenact it um yeah people get up at 6 a.m to go sleep in a field because of this <laughs> it's absolutely. incredible absolutely and just as a quick coda, folks, because we were talking about uh, expense of the title, um, Luke has very kindly just made me aware that there is a 30%, 30% discount code at oup.com. If you type in A-A-F-L-Y-G-6 at oup.com, you will get a 30% 30, 30 discount on the title. Once again, that is Alpha Alpha Foxtrot Lima yankee golf six at oup.com for 30 percent off and like i say if you're not convinced by that then there's no hope hello again folks yes i know the usual ever so slightly tedious begging letter as always please remember to like and subscribe little things that make a colossal difference it's the algorithm that drives how widely these episodes are spread and your inclination to like the posts on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and so on. That willingness to hit the share button, to take that link and copy it into your own social media feeds, those are the kinds of things that make a colossal difference in terms of wider reach and bringing in new people who can enjoy this show. And if you're enjoying it, then it would be great for other people to share that enjoyment with you. So please do take the time to spread the word. I'm conscious that a number of people who with the best one in the world I don't even know are being very kind and doing that kind of thing. If you're one of those, then believe me, heartfelt thanks to you. Um, those of you who aren't, if you can spare the time, please do. It, you know, it takes a, a few seconds and a little bit of electricity. 
makes a massive difference. Um, but the most important thing, there's a subscribe button. Just whack that and then you'll be able to get live updates whenever the next episode goes out. As you know, this is a show that endeavours to run on a shoestring budget. So if you are willing and able to contribute either as a one-off um, or as something kind of more regular, please know that it makes a massive difference. All the funds get reinvested. So none of this is about lining my own pocket. It's all about how can we kind of build the show and uh, look to provide fresh content, um, but also more diverse content. So the big thing that I'm looking at for the future is how to launch a YouTube channel successfully and considering some kind of live stream capability and what that might or might not look like. No promises at this stage. The other thing I would say is that if you want more content, if you're able to um, contribute to the, the Patreon scheme, it does help in terms of trying to reach that goal of ultimately going weekly. That is what I would like to do. Have one of these go out every single week, 52 in a year, but these are huge investments of time. Even when an episode isn't four hours long, like some of the ones you've had recently, it it takes a, a good four hours per episode, absolute minimum, probably close to six in terms of editing and, and preparation and recording time and so on and so forth. Obviously, I am sitting here playing the world's smallest violin, but if you enjoy the show and if you would like more content, please do consider whether or not you're able to contribute. I know times are hard. Um, there are links in the description. Go to Patreon if you're considering um, something regular on a, on a monthly basis. The idea with that is that there are different tiers. They start at £1 a month, um, go up all the way up actually to uh, £25 a month for those who are insanely generous. Um, and you get different perks within each tier. So you can get shout-outs with an episode, you can get one-to-one -one meetings with me, voting rights to determine themed months. Uh, Marshall patrons, for example, can actually demand episodes. Um, so if any of that is of interest to you, please do consider uh, whether or not you would like to become a patron. Equally, a one-off tip can be made via Ko-fi. Um, and whatever support you're able to offer, I am massively grateful, as I'm sure you know. A particular shout out to my Emperor level patrons, Mark Stoos, JC Kaiser, and Todd and Laird Campbell. My Marshall patrons, Matt Bone, Marcus Cribb, and Rachel Stark. My Commander patrons, John Haynes, Ger Brown, Liam Telfer, Jane Davis, Bob Burnham, Andy Meekin, Michael Guest, and Graham Swidenbank. And my mentioned in Dispatches patrons, M. Duck, Anthony Gumbau, Chris Pramus, Miles Reedy, Alexandra Leon, Alistair Campbell-Greve, Beatrice DeGraff, Brendan Teeling, Colin Fieldhouse, Ed Koss, Bruins Girl, Gareth Copeland, Jeff Maple, Hugh Brennan, Indiana Fats, Jim Deary, Jim Getz, Josh Keeney, Lucy Tatner, Lynn Dawson, Mark Dewhurst, Mark Anscombe, Rob Griffith, Roy Muir, Ross Flowers, Ryan Diamond, Rob Coathlin, Mark Trowbridge, Nick Overland, Stephen Coulson, and Graham Goodwin. I'll be back very soon, but until then, I'm Zach White. This has been The Napoleonicist. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe, and as always, thank you for listening.
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.